When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have a very interesting show. The subject of today's discussion is the subject of creating a renewable energy sustainable economy as the next logical, eco-friendly, necessary, and interestingly, most economically sound basis of an economy. As a society, we labor under the misgiving, the misguided assumption that our current fossil fuel-based economy is the only one that is profitable, and to change to a renewably-based one, despite the fact that it is based on an infinite, inexhaustible supply, easy to harvest and transport when needed, is horribly uneconomical and not profitable. Nothing could be further from the truth. In today's show, we will be guided by one of the most internationally renowned economists and foremost economists, Hazel Henderson, who has been leading the way in emphasizing the value economically, ecologically of a solar economy, a renewable energy economy as the next stage of our essentially evolution and human development. It is obvious to many in science and business that climate change is being seriously accelerated by the continued massive use of fossil fuels. And Hazel Henderson has been making a case describing the value, as mentioned, of a renewable energy-based economy for many decades at this point. Among Hazel's many accomplishments, she was the creator and co-executive producer of a TV series. She is world-renowned as a futurist, evolutionary economist, a worldwide syndicated columnist, and consultant on sustainable development, an author of the Axiom and Nautilus award-winning book, Ethical Markets, Growing the Green Economy, and eight additional books. Since becoming a full-time media executive in 2004, Hazel stepped down from her many board memberships, including World Watch Institute, Calvert Social Investment Fund, and other associations, including the Social Investment Forum and the Social Venture Network. She remains on the International Council of, of the Instituto Ethos de Empresa, 
a responsibilidad. I better work on my Spanish social in Sao Paulo. I guess I should mean uh, Portuguese. Formerly on the International Advisory Council of Forum 2000. She serves on the Program Council of Forum 2000, Prague in Czechoslovakia, founded by their late president, Vaclav Havel. And she is one of the world, uh, is a fellow of the World Business Academy. Her work is extensive, spanning decades. She stands out among economists and others to the extent that she was named and honored as one of the top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business behavior by Trust Across America. In 2012, she was named to the Post Growth Institute list as a top uh, one of the top 100 luminary inspiring global prosperity uh, leaders talking about economic wealth and honored for her lifetime achievement with the award for natural law and order from the Maharishi University School of Management and with the outstanding uh, the award for outstanding contribution to development of ESG and investing at TBLI Europe. In 2013, she was inducted into the International Society of Sustainability Professionals Hall of Fame. Hazel was a guest on A Better World Radio uh, with a dear colleague and friend, Louis Boatlink, uh, some months back, talking at that point about uh, an economy based on love and, of course, trust. Today, we're going to be turning our attention to this particular subject of a renewably-based economy and the ethics behind it, as well as the common sense and even economic soundness. So, Hazel Henderson, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Well, thank you, Mitch. I really enjoyed the last program we did, and I'm looking forward to talking with you again. Well, very good. I'm so glad, and myself as well. You are, as mentioned, an outstanding leader and thinker on the subject of how to create this transition between a fossil fuel-based economy, which, of course, we've had for hundreds of years since the industrial uh, age, etc., and now, for very obvious reasons of global warming, climate change, and just pure common sense and economics, uh, moving into the next stage, Hazel, is what makes sense. Could you lay out for our audience the... Uh, the thinking that has gone behind this for you in the body of your work? Yes, absolutely. Well, for me, um, the introduction to the science that uh, we're looking at now that goes beyond the old economics framework, um, it really began when I was a policy wonk down in Washington in uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s, and I was mm -hmm. an advisor to the National Science Foundation and the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment and the National Academy of Engineering and all of this. And it yeah. was a, an amazing revelation to me, talking with all the scientists, that um, basically what they were saying was that the the real situation uh, for humanity on this planet, uh, which if you pull back and take a wide shot, you realize is yes. that we are planet Earth revolves around the sun. 
And the sun is our source of energy. We get this immense flow of free photons every day. And basically, the first technology that life developed on this planet was from plants. And they learned through the process of photosynthesis in their leaves how to capture those free photons from the sun and turn them into food, carbohydrates, and energy. And that is the basis, basically, of all life on Earth. And so once you begin with the science and realize, well, um, humans came along and, of course, naturally, you know, they uh, they started out, um, you know, with wood, um, chopping up wood and they, the whole process of con- combustion. And then we found coal and oil and whale oil and all of these things. And it, we were always either digging in the ground or, you know, capturing whales and all of those kind of things. And that was really how the Industrial Revolution began uh, in Britain, where I grew up, uh, 300 years ago. And and the next evolutionary stage is where instead of looking down and digging in the earth, suddenly we're looking up and realizing that those free photons are still there. And all we have to do is to mimic nature, develop uh, the technologies of capturing those photons. And that's what's been going on very, very quietly for the last 30 years. And I remember one of the meetings that I went to with these scientists back in the mid-1970s. And they said that if we uh, in the U.S. had subsidized the development of solar panels and wind turbines and energy efficiency and geothermal energy and uh, hydropower to the same extent that we subsidized fossil fuels and nuclear power, we would have had a completely renewable resource-driven economy by the mid-1970s. And that kind of blew my mind. And you so, mean if we had begun when? Yes, if we had begun by looking up and realizing. Oh, you mean back 300 years ago in the Industrial Age? Yeah, well, no, I mean, even if we had realized, okay, um, you know, the oil is now polluting the atmosphere and the coal, you know, is polluting everything. Um, Even if we had by, um, you know, well, we started subsidizing fossil fuels back 100 years ago. When uh-huh. you know all of those oil wells uh, were were dug and everything else, and of course, what you mean at the time of the Rockefeller Standard Oil? Yes, at that's that right. Time? Okay, yeah, I got and, it. and so sure. what always happens, you know, is once you start subsidizing a certain kind of technology, um, yeah. it's very hard to stop because you get more and more client companies, and they get bigger and stronger, like Exxon and BP, yeah. and you know the big coal companies. Peabody and all the rest of it. And then they begin to be able to influence members of Congress and very hard to shut these subsidies down. So where we are today 
is that we still, 95% of the subsidies still go to oil and coal and gas and nuclear mm-hmm. power. Just through the power now of the fossil fuel industry to prevent that shift. And I saw it beginning to happen down in Washington in the uh, 1970s, 1980s, when business yeah. plans began arriving on my desk. And uh, these solar technologies, you know, um, are centuries old. I mean, you know, this centuries is a, old, really. A centuries old, yeah. And mm. and so all we needed to do really was kind of uh, tune them up uh, a bit for the twenty twentieth yes. and twenty first century, but. There wasn't any need for some gigantic breakthrough like we had to have uh, to fund nuclear energy. And, you know, the way that was funded back, if you remember, after World War II, maybe you don't remember, but Eisenhower was talking about how we must have atoms for peace. You know, we just dropped the atomic Mm -hmm. bomb and everything like that. And so the idea was, okay, um, let's have nuclear power plants, um, even though they were incredibly costly, and we've never understood what to do with all of the waste that's piled up around these plants. And they never would have been developed in the private sector. They had to have special acts of Congress to say that the taxpayers would pay the insurance in case, you know, there was an accident and all of that. And so, you know, uh, that was how we sort of ended up um, in the situation we are today. And that's why I wrote a book. When I left Washington, uh, I published a book in 1981 called The Politics of the Solar Age. Mm-hmm. And I had worked. I had watched it firsthand. You know um, the power of these incumbent industries to prevent um, innovation and to block um, all of these little companies that were sending me their business plans, wanting to yeah. do wind generators and solar panels and all of this new technology. Well, fast forward to today, and now. I would say unequivocally that this evolutionary uh, step toward what I call the solar age is now unstoppable. And what we are doing at, at my company, Ethical Markets Media, is we have been tracking the private investments that have been going into solar energy and wind power and all of these new green technologies uh, since 2007. And our current figure, we just put out a new report, uh, is $7.1 trillion, with a T. That is oh, already my. in the pipeline from private investors like me. You know, mm. no government yes. money at all. And so what this has been doing is helping to scale these technologies. And as you know, the more you scale up production – of a technology, whether it's solar panels or wind generators or whatever, the price comes down. So where we are today is even though the oil price has dropped from about $30 a barrel to today about $50 a barrel, it is still not that much cheaper than um, solar, wind, and uh, and certainly not um, energy efficiency. So it it doesn't even matter anymore 
what happens to the oil price. The solar energy industries are just streaking away on their own now simply because of the amount of replication and the scaling up of production. So, so that's what you we meant are to today. say from they've dropped from actually, I mean, at a height, I think oil was up to about $130 yes. a barrel. Now it's down to approximately It was about 50 30. today, something like that. It was at 50 and, today, okay. So it's yeah. just been bouncing around. But you see, fundamentally, you're making a point here, Hazel, that despite what might be the fluctuations in the current marketplace of oil, we're dealing with some fundamentals that are way more important, which has to do with the very climate of the planet herself. And yes. if we know we keep going in this direction, money will become the least important uh, variable of it all. We'll be hungering for water and shelter. You know. You're absolutely so right. That, that sort mean, of like changes the conversation in itself. It yeah. does, and yet the interesting thing is, Mitch, that um, even though you're absolutely right, um, even if climate change were not the driver that has, it has become, you know, the tipping point yes. really was last year, mm -hmm. 2015, mm -hmm. when 195 countries um, agreed at the UN to, perform, to pursue a new form of development not based on economic growth as measured by GDP, uh, yes. which even the economist now has editorially come out um, saying it was no good, steering mm -hmm. us over the cliff. Um, so we, we've now reached the point where um, the, the driver now um, is the new technologies themselves, and they're just now efficient enough uh, that whatever the oil price happens to be, um, it is, uh, uh, it's not uh, driving uh, the global demand picture anymore. And the best um, yes. example of that, as you know, is that this, the, the, the king of um, Saudi Arabia's son, uh, Prince Mohammed, 30 years old, uh, came out about three weeks ago and said that um, he was taking over Aramco, the big uh, yes. oil company Saudi they own, and uh, doing an IPO with it so as to turn it into, guess what, a renewable Solar. energy company. <laughs> so if the Saudis are going to invest now right. uh, in renewable energy, what else do we need right. to know? <laughs> That's right. What else do we need to yes, I mean, see so, that there's then, writing in the then, sky about what yeah, our new even, direction is, right? Yeah. But even then, exactly. that, that's only one. That's only one factor. Then there's another big factor, which of course mm -hmm. uh, there's a big fight going on right now in California. And let let me explain. See, um, yes. as we shift to electric vehicles, um, then you're going to use less and less oil for transportation, and that has been oil has been the big transportation fuel. Surely. So take the example of California. Today, there are 200,000 electric vehicles running around in, in California, and there was a new kind of road rage beginning to happen. 
And what was happening oh. is there are not enough electric charging stations. So people oh. would drive up their electric car, plug it into a charging station, go in and have their lunch at some place or go, you know, whatever they were going to do at a supermarket yeah. or something. And when they came out, they would find that another electric car owner had pulled their plug out and put their own <laughs> plug in. <laughs> oh my and God. so kind of, you know, th- this reminds oh. me of in the 70s when there were gas lines and people were actually yes. shooting each other over the oh gas lines. So anyway, the net of it was that Governor Brown in California about two or three weeks ago decreed that the state must now uh, wants to see about half a million um, electric vehicle charging stations around around the state. And yes. so right now, this is the interesting thing. The big old electric utilities are absolutely terrified. You know, they have the old fossil fuel centralized generating stations, and they're losing money right and left because people are tiptoeing away and putting um, panels on their roofs, you know, and cutting themselves off from the grid. So Mm -hmm. they're desperate to find a new source of revenue. So they have got their lobbyists there in Sacramento um, saying, okay, we want the business of uh, providing all of these uh, EV electric vehicle charging stations. But, as you know, if you're charging those electric cars with dirty fossil fuel generated electricity, we're back to square one. Right. And so, what, we have, what have we accomplished? Exactly. What have we accomplished? So it's a so very good point. The, yeah. Here is the thing that, and I have to fully disclose that I'm an investor in a company in San Diego that produces completely solar-powered electric vehicle chargers, oh and it, and so basically now it's a race where they're saying, look, our electric vehicle chargers are purely solar, no pollution, and furthermore, (laughs) you don't have to dig up the street to connect them with the grid. You don't have to have permits. Uh, They just deliver them off the back of a flatbed truck, and you can set them up in half an hour. And so uh, right now, um, this is the little local politics of the solar age that's going on. Indeed. Isn't that interesting? Well, I very much appreciate this because I I was also uh, helping to build an electric car company, Hazel, going back to 2007, which has an efficiency level that's in excess of 95%. There There is no other vehicle with an electric motor of this level of efficiency and wow. yet it needs to go yes it needs to go the next level of being able to supply its own battery with solar in the vehicle itself uh, uh-huh. which by the way would mean that we wouldn't even need uh the recharging stations or they would be an accessory instead yeah, of the primary source of the electricity that's so interesting. interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah. I think in but the point uh, is, that this is the direction. This is the yes. direction. Oh, this is our society the and the entrepreneurs, the eco entrepreneurs, our social enterprise entrepreneurs, are steering mm-hmm. us, no pun intended, into. You know. Yes. Oh, that's so amazing. Well, I, I would love to know more about your electric vehicle. 
Absolutely. Offline, so I would send, like to know more about yours. <laughs> yeah, send me something sure. like that. But I do think the, there's going to be an interim period where there's got a lot of electric vehicles that are going to need charging. And we're yes. going to have to make I sure agree. that they're charged from solar energy sources rather than fossil fuels. Exactly. Exactly. So you make such a good uh, point. Otherwise, it's just business as usual. Oh, yeah. It's still relying on the fossil fuel foundational exactly. source, and that's what we have to change. We have so to change. Could, that's what we have to change. Could, yeah. So on the one hand, you bring up the uh, subject of electric vehicles because at the end of the day, we are so fossil fuel-based in the domain of transportation. In other areas for, let's say, home home heating or air conditioning or uh, commercial buildings, that is becoming more and more solarized. Could yes. you talk about the economic basis? Because, you know, just as I said at the top of the show, people get nervous. They say, oh, my God, we're going to lose the foundation of our uh, economy if we shift over green energy. Renewable energy is so much more expensive. And then what about the jobs? Could you address that whole area? Yes. Because yes. this is well, so fundamentally thing, important to people. Yes. I mean, we are going through a global transition. And it's happening now in Europe, in every country. It's happening probably fastest in China. They are trying to grab the solar energy future markets. And yes. they, theirs are the lowest price um, solar roof panels. Uh, they're trying to capture the market for wind generators, and they provide, they manufacture at such huge volume. And you see, they're being driven by their own air pollution problems. And they know they cannot go on burning coal because um, the the pollution of their cities, uh, you know, is such an enormous health cost. And it actually costs them about 3% of GDP. Uh, that has to be deducted uh, just to deal with the costs of the pollution uh, that their fossil-fueled economy is uh, costing. So clearly, this gets us back to the whole problem of uh, faulty metrics. And, you know, for the last Lord knows how long, we've all been told that unless the GDP is growing, um, we're all going to lose our shirts, right? We have to keep it growing. But the way it was growing was polluting more and more and more because we weren't counting in all of those social and environmental costs. And I was amazed reading The Economist from London uh, last issue where the cover story um, was, okay, time to overhaul GDP and to subtract all those bads from the goods you know, all the costs that we've been including, cleaning up the pollution, the health costs, you know, all of that yeah. stuff had been added in to the, to the GDP as if it was useful product. And mm-hmm. um, so, uh, it, you know, I've been campaigning for this for about 30 years, <laughs> along yeah. with a lot of other economists, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny that finally, you know, the Economist magazine um, came to the table and said, well, gee yeah. whiz, you know, you, you guys are, are right. <laughs> we have to fix this. <laughs> so if we fix yeah. the macro statistics, 
then yeah. it begins driving investments in the right direction. And as you've probably noticed, what has actually been happening is that the owning fossil fuels and, quote, proven reserves of coal and oil will, will bankrupt you. I mean, Peabody yeah. Coal uh, declared bankruptcy about uh, two weeks ago. And really? this has been happening in the shale oil uh, industry. There have been about 35 bankruptcies in the last couple of weeks. And the Economist magazine says they think there will be another 70 bankruptcies in uh, that whole sector. And so what has happened, you see, is that Wall Street... You mean in the course it, of this next year? In the course of this yes, yeah, that's what they're saying. Yeah. So and, in other and words, so fracking been, is on its dying on the dying vine. Yeah, because you see that the statistics were wrong. And so suddenly that they realized there was enormous amount of malinvestments and um, miscalculations in the fossil fuel sector. It's now referred to as stranded assets. So what mm -hmm. they're having to do, you know, that all of these big oil and uh, fossil fuel companies carry on their books at very inflated values, what they call proven reserves. Mm -hmm. But we now know that most of those proven reserves, if they're even there, cannot be lifted out of the ground and burned without cooking the planet. Yes. And so taking In other words, in, a whole other almost incalculable cost. Yes, uh, exactly. And so really all of this shifted in last year when those 195 countries all stepped up to the plate and said, okay, the new model of development is called sustainable development where we take in all of those costs and not externalize them from the balance sheet. And yes. then we steer the economy toward a green, healthier, renewable uh, future. And that yeah. was ratified in December of 2015 when those same countries all pledged to make that shift, to stop The COP21 in Paris? Yes, COP21, to yes. stop investing in fossil fuels and make the shift into accelerating the production of solar cells, wind generators, efficiency. And so the current debate is very interesting because it always used to be that um, people would think, oh gosh, we have to put all of this money into R&D if we are going to shift um, to renewable resource economies. Um, you know, even people like Bill Gates, you know, they came, yes. they went to Paris and said, oh, we're going to uh, invest billions into R&D. And uh, people like us who've been looking on the ground at the actual technologies yes. say, no, no, no. All we need to do is to deploy the technologies exactly. we already implement. have. Implement, right. Exactly. You know, why spend well all of this money when the more we deploy the technologies that we have, the, the, the lower the cost goes. And then the Indeed. lower the prices go, the more we deploy them. So it's a virtuous circle. And Very so true. that's really what's happened now is that, that everybody's realized, okay, you know, let's just get on with it. And it can be sometimes government 
procurement can help. I mean, you know, if municipalities decide that they're going to exchange all of their lighting systems to LEDs, Mm -hmm. um, and if they're going to um, purchase, instead of um, polluting vehicles, if they're going to purchase um, electric uh, vehicles for their fleets, all of those kind of things, um, it can happen now faster than anybody thought. And so now, um, as you've probably noticed, if, if you go on Bloomberg New Energy Finance and our Green Transition Scoreboard, um, where we track that mm-hmm. $7.1 that's already invested, um, you can see that this is the place that you want your investment shifted to. Yes. Definitely. You see, and so you know, I'm uh, I'm very sympathetic because this is happening faster than anybody thought, and so mm-hmm. I'm saying to some of our friends, you know, in the fossil fuel industry, well, look, you don't have to write down those um, what you thought were proven assets of coal and proven mm-hmm. assets of oil. You don't have to write them down on your balance sheet to zero. Carry them on your books as chemical feedstocks. The more you keep them in the ground, the more valuable yeah. they'll become to make plastics and all kinds of useful things in the future, right. rather than burning them. Rather than burning them, exactly. That's a Who very good idea. That's very creative thinking, Hazel. You know. that, so, number one, that's what I'm you hoping know, they'll do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. As you know, there's a big movement keep it in the ground number two there's a major divestment movement happening across the country that organizations such as 350.org the work of bill mckibben and many others we have the rockefeller brothers who have publicly divested from exxon and other majors um saying just publicly declaring that we are getting out of the fossil fuel investment business. As well as dozens of cities. How powerful is that? Universities across the country and 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 the world. And, you know, the... um, uh, thanks to the students of 350.org, you know, all of those portfolios, the big endowments of, like, uh, some of the big universities... I think Harvard has been a holdout for a long time. I don't know whether they've made the shift. But, see, they're going to lose money unless the longer they stay stuck in these fossilized 20th century sectors, the more money they're going to lose. That's correct. That's correct. Let's let everybody know that you are... So this is the whole thing on its head. Absolutely. You are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight or Standard Time. So glad you're joining us. If you do not yet get our newsletter, please go to www.abetterworld.tv. That's abetterworld.tv. It's a free newsletter. We welcome your participation in A Better World community and family. We're also on every Monday evening in Manhattan, in New York City, on television, on community access television, A Better World TV. So when you get the newsletter, you will learn about all the different shows and events happening in the general New York tri-state area. Today, we are having the delightful honor and pleasure of speaking again with Hazel Henderson, a futurist, economist, green economist, 
and the author of numerous books and papers and articles and television shows speaking about the importance of a renewable economy, a renewably uh, energy-based economy, as well as the economic soundness of it, which is the subject of today's show. So, Hazel, again, welcome to A Better World. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you, I love your input. Absolutely. It's so important. So we spoke about uh, um, electric vehicles. We spoke about, you mentioned the seven-point-plus trillion-dollar worldwide investment in uh, the green economy, largely in renewably-based energies. This is a phenomenal number, and it's interesting because it also highlights how business leads a given country and world. It's not government. It appears, actually, that at least here at home in the United States, the government is lagging far behind what the business world is up to. Will you comment well, on that? I think it's because it's because the Congress has been completely deadlocked uh, for so long with the forces of the old uh, incumbent industries, the fossil fuel yes. industries, um, and you know the, there are many many members of Congress who are absolutely wedded to the the contributions they get from those industries and you know we have been trying to put our report in front of them you know we've been tallying up these numbers since 2009 and you know we keep trying to get them in front of the congress people and say look hey you're on the wrong side of history here there's a wall of money coming at you from from the future and yeah. you know you're all invested in the past in all these fossilized companies, and um, you know yes we have to retrain people uh, as quickly as we can. But I mean you know like the mining industry, I mean those poor miners. That's a terrible way f- to have to earn a living. I mean, and uh, there's about a hundred thousand miners left in the USA in all of the mining operations you know coal and and at the same time there's Minerals. 5 million new jobs have been created in solar and wind and energy efficiency and retrofitting buildings five and building electric cars and yes 5 million so. and so so what we have to do is to tell the congress to hopefully at this next election um, we might be able to really make this shift uh, and say, well, look, all we have to do now is stop wasting the taxpayers' money by continuing to subsidize fossil fuels and nuclear power. Let it, we don't yeah. need any of those subsidies anymore. Give it back to the taxpayers. And then yeah. the renewable energy economy will streak ahead even faster. Yes, exactly. And now, we'll would save you, the money. Would you would you take a moment, Hazel, and lay out to whatever extent you can, including amortization of uh, new infrastructure as needed for setting up wind farms, for setting up solar farms, or instituting panels onto rooftops of, you know, uh, suburbs and municipalities, roofs and all of that, What are we looking at when you do an overall view, when we make the general macro statement that a 
renewably based economy is going to be much sounder economically when it appears the opposite, well, to most people. And that's the conversation always. But in reality, it's not the case. The, The case is actually the opposite. Could you lay out some of the facts and figures of what that looks like? Well, uh, yeah, let, let's start with looking at the International Energy Agency. And they're tracking all of this fairly closely now. They're, they're still a little behind. They're always having to update their forecasts of how rapidly uh, the uh, renewables are taking over. But what yes. they do tell us, you know, is that uh, right now on their, um, you know, the, 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 the business as usual kind of investment thing, the electric utilities would be planning to spend several trillion on new um, power plants, new uh, and grid, you know, fixing up the grids and all of that. And so basically what we need to do um, is to begin to reprogram that money because the way they used to get their money, if you remember, um, and still do, um, is that they um, put out um, they put out bonds and they sell them to pension funds. And they say, okay, um, this is a bond issue. Uh, we're going to build a, a power plant. And, uh, and so, you know, the returns will be X, Y, and D. And uh, X, Y, and D, whatever the pension fund is um, or, or whatever, uh, institutional um, investors normally would just take those bonds without, you know, they've always been, oh, well, the, yeah, sure, we always do that. And suddenly the pension fund managers are saying, well, look what's happened to your demand. And 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 so the electric utilities are having to admit that their demand is falling all the time because of all these people who are putting solar panels on their roofs. And so that's mm. why the electric utilities, suddenly their funding model is broken. And even though they've got these big and vicious plans to spend all these trillions <laughs> on new power plants, yeah. it isn't going to happen. And so that's why they're rushing okay. to legislators, uh, at the, particularly at the state level. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, sure. and that's why they're trying to capture the market for um, electric vehicle charging stations and all of that. Yes. It's so, almost an act of desperation. <coughs> So um, the best way, so not to get too deep in the weeds, Mitch, um, why don't we have your listeners simply go to uh, www.greentransitionscoreboard.com. All one word, greentransitionscoreboard.com. And they'll find my report, uh, which was released about um, a month ago on uh, this $7.1 trillion. And that way, you know, we can dig into all the details of this. Uh, because, you know, there's so many different pieces of it that I could go into. Like we Indeed. have a, a, a report. What we've reported on, for example, is all of the rural electric co-ops. You know, in this country, um, there are about 800 um, electric generating co-ops, Right. 
mm-hmm. all over the rural areas. And unfortunately, they were all pressured into uh, buying coal. And so oh. there's a very interesting new report that we have um, highlighted where now they're trying to get out of these coal contracts and uh, shift to renewables. So this transition is so deep, and it's going on not only in every country in the world, but all of these different sectors, you know, like um, the the cooperative, uh, the electric co-ops that have been operating for 80 years, serving, they serve about 900 small communities all across the U.S., and so, and is it possible to upgrade these to wind and yeah, solar? Yeah, well, that's what they're doing now. That's your they, old But the first thing they have to do um, is to get out of these contracts they were trapped into, these yes. long-term coal contracts, which they were pressured into signing um, by, by the power of the fossil fuel industry, you see. And the, the, so, you see, this is these changes, we have a list of the top most carbon-intense um, small um, co- co- cooperatives like this, the, the most carbon-intense, as you would expect, is in Kentucky, the Big Rivers mm-hmm. um, Electric Utility Co-op. And then there's, there's of course, you know, they're in, they're in Minnesota, they're in Wisconsin, um, and, you know, they're all over the country. And we've got a list of them and to what extent um, they are dependent on coal and how quickly uh, they can uh, reprogram themselves to, you know, take advantage of, you know, wind. And in some yeah. cases, the transition um, is seems to be gas because, you know, so many of these coal plants now are shifting to gas. And even though yes. gas is a polluter, um, I think that uh, there's a lot of uh, coal companies are, are shifting to gas, whether we like it or not. All we can do um, is to make sure that their methane emissions are—you uh, know—don't allow them to flare it off. You remember all of that, where they yes. would just, you know, waste methane, methane and gas and, land one and oh, two. just terribly <laughs> tells wasteful. the story among yeah. many others. Yes, indeed. And In so fact, then right now, another- Hazel. There, there is an issue I uh, just heard in detail this morning about the Spectra pipeline through Peekskill, New York, passing by the Indian Point nuclear plants. Oh, and my God. Yeah. Within, within 30, 50 miles of some 20 million people, and if there is one disruption in that Spectra pipeline of gas through New York State, I believe Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, that could ignite a problem with that particular nuclear plant, and then it is curtains for the entire New York municipal area and more. I used to live in New York City, and so I I know know all about Con Ed and the problems that that they have, you know, in making this transition. But let's go, let's cut to the chase, because really it all comes back to finance, and it comes back to the fact that finance is still fossilized and all of their thinking. <laughs> it's it's yeah. more or less their thinking 
is still fossilized. And, you know, yeah. what happens with these big, big institutional investors, um, they, they all compete with each other um, for the benchmarks, you yeah. know, it, it's that kind of a very averaged out kind of a game. Oh, so when you well, say benchmarks, you mean, for instance, an annualized return over Returns, the course of yes. 20 and years so they, or 30 they years? Be, yeah, they got to be very yeah. bureau, bureaucratized. And, and it's, okay, I can keep my job. I can keep my head down and keep my job as long as I meet the benchmark. Yeah. You know, and I, do, yes. I don't do any worse than, than any other investor, you know, investment yes. manager. And so yes. that's kept them trapped in this past thinking. It's like they're backing into the future looking through the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. And all their statistics, you see, are all these sort of rearview yeah. statistics. I mean, that, that's why they didn't think about, oh, we could um, revalue our proven reserves um, uh, uh, as chemical feedstock. Let's not call yes. them... You know, I mean, that kind of thinking, you know, uh, and so we've been working with a very interesting group um, called the UN Inquiry, which has been going on for a couple of years in designing a sustainable financial system. And Mm -hmm. so they brought out a report last October at the World Bank and the IMF meeting uh, and just beginning to point this out. How do we retrain all the asset managers? And that's what we've been doing at Ethical Markets, you know, because uh, basically if you're an asset manager back in the old days when you were investing in coal um, and oil reserves, you had to learn a bit of geology. Now you're going to have to earn you're going to have to learn a whole expanded view of the real science, and you're going to have to learn that from what we call Earth system science. And mm-hmm. that is basically, there's 120 satellites up there revolving this planet and mapping on a daily basis the real situation, uh, whether it's uh, the temperature of the oceans or where the um, where the arable soils are, where the droughts are likely to be, where the next flood is likely to be coming. Um, we need this kind of real-time information now about how the planet actually functions. Yes. And so, oh, you see, so they didn't learn any of this stuff at the Harvard Business School. Correct. It was all based on money. Numbers. You know, Making money out of money. That, that, yes. That's what Wall Streeters do. They don't yes. invest very much. About 12% gets invested in new enterprises or to really build new factories and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, about um, 80% of it is simply um, trading with each other. Correct. Ma- money making money. Money making money. And it's a kind of a closed loop, you see. And so to break into that and re-educate these people is very, very hard. It's an enormous task, enormous task. But I'm so glad that you have, that you're on it, Hazel, because it takes real thinkers, open-minded, creative thinkers like yourself to um, take on this kind of task. You're dealing with very narrowed, uh, perspectives on life, and yes, it's yes. Uh, 
and they're also missing, the, they're missing the whole picture. Yeah, and of course not not only that, Mitch, but they went into student debt, you know, to get those MBAs yeah. and those financial exactly. engineering degrees, and it's all you know, it's all wasted. You see, because yeah. um, all of that stuff is kind of irrelevant on the wrong metrics. I mean, the only kind of risks yeah. they measure are like market risk, um, inflation risk. You know, they don't look at the real risks are water shortages or climate exactly. change. Real. You you know? world. Exactly. They don't yeah, take the, the extra real, step the to the real world. world. They're living exactly. in their own Wall Street style bubble. Exactly. Absolutely. No, and that, I get that's it. why now, I made. You. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Well, I, I just wanted to say that 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 um, yes. I have um, a uh, an ebook. It's only fifty six pages, where mm-hmm. um, I've tried to compress all of this. And it's free and downloadable from our website, and yes. um, it's basically called mapping the solar, the mapping the global transition to the solar oh, I have age. it right in front of me right now, Hazel. And you can, uh, as you can book. see, um, the foreword was written by the chief scientist at NASA. At NASA. Correct. You see, because they're the ones that have these Earth-observing satellites that are tracking the real world. And this is the new curriculum for finance. So interesting. I'd like to ask you, because your work of ethical markets and because of your bringing ethics into the business world, which is something I've sought to do as well, but you're doing it on a massive scale – I'm wondering, I have my own hypothesis about this, but, you know, the fracking industry, natural gas industry, even by the, United, by the New York Times, it was suggested that they are really nothing more than Ponzi schemes. Now, for the New York Times to make a statement like that is rather radical. I'm just wondering, I, you know, you're talking about mistaken metrics. Well, my supposition is that this is not by mistake at that the numbers were engineered, no pun intended here, to mm-hmm. be such that it appears to be highly profitable in order to attract a lot of new investment dollars. But in fact, the big boys behind the companies actually know what the costs are, and they know that chances are great that these investors are not going to see much more than a dime back if they recapture their initial investment at all. What are your thoughts well, about that? Well, yeah, I mean, he, here's the thing, um, that, uh, okay, they were taught all of these um, in, inaccurate metrics in business school. And, and yes. business schools are still teaching this stuff, that you can yes. externalize the cost from your balance sheet of all yes. of your dirty, polluting kind of methods, you see. And so mm-hmm. uh, what's happening now is that the whole, they called it externalities. Oh, we'll just externalize from our balance sheet. And so all does that of those mean social, basically dump it onto the shoulders of the dump, taxpayer? We dump, yeah, we dump it onto the taxpayer, hide it in the environment, or yes. make future generations pay for it you see so that whole part that's the ponzi game that's that's yes. the real ponzi scheme so in this report of ours we call it ex- ending externalities and yes. um full spectrum accounting 
is what will clarify this transition management process. And mm-hmm. what the new metaphor really is, okay, everybody knows we're going through this global transition and that every sector from global to local to the family is having to reposition themselves and go through this transition in one way or another. And the best way to do this is to get the metrics straight and that is to, to force all of those former externalized costs back onto the balance sheet, the balance yes. sheet of companies as well as the balance sheet of nations, i.e. the GDP. So yes. that's what we talk about in this uh, current report and in that um, e-book of mine. In your book. And so right. the thing is that, you know, um, I feel sorry for a whole lot of people who went into debt to learn this old financial model that they now mm-hmm. have to really throw out. You know, it's, it's, yes. it's terrible. But it's they are going to have to throw it out. Otherwise, um, not only are they going to lose their shirts, but they're going to um, make it very hard for the pension fund manage money that they manage to provide the beneficiaries with the pensions that they're entitled to. I wanted to bring something up to you regarding Mm -hmm. pension funds that are notoriously conservative, seeking a stable, if not enormous, return. Stability and security are their key phrases, and for good reason. This is the future of retirees across the nation. No problem with any of that. However, I'm now working on another project that is a wind turbine project, which if my colleagues are successful, they will largely be able to supplant the use of nuclear energy in Japan. In oh, fact, the Japanese, yes, the Japanese government and uh, yes. Japanese eco-entrepreneurs are very interested in this particular um, middle size very aesthetically pleasing, bird-friendly wind turbine. There are many out there. We know that. Um, And there are a few that distinguish themselves. This happens to be one of them. The business model that my colleague is generating, again, no pun intended, I can't help myself, um, is uh, one in which um, the company will – actually buy or lease long-term lease the land and sell the rather than selling the turbines they will simply sell the uh the electricity the energy the electricity at very at very very fair prices so it everyone gets the benefit of the renewable energy resource and lower prices at the same time and uh, we were looking at the possibility of instead of investing in the con eds of the world or instead of investing in the um, real estate of the world and the bubbles therein, but investing in, you know, in a project such as this because they need, yeah, well, you know, long-term several hundred but, million dollar capital. Does yeah, that make sense I mean, to you, you from an economic point of view? Yes, because it's all about deployment, you know. Let's get these technologies into use, and then you get the price reduction. We can retire the nuclear – most of the nuclear power plants are at the end of their useful life, and you know what happens to nuclear power plants? And the end of their licenses. 
Yes. Yes, then they get exactly. this embrittlement problem, and a lot of them have exceeded um, their uh, first, you know, their lifespan by by some of yes. them by decades, and so That's they are correct. going to have to all be retired. And you know, when I was in uh, Washington in the 70s when they were building all of these things, I remember testifying before Congress. Um, and saying, well, why is it the business plans uh, of these nuclear power plants don't include the decommissioning costs? And, of course, the mm. decommissioning costs are about the same as the original oh. construction costs. And so this no. is a horrible, horrible burden. And if you look at the cost of trying to deal with Fukushima, um, it's much worse um, because of the accident they had there. Um, yes. But even so, trying to decommission that thing um, would have cost a tremendous amount of money. So the, the sooner that we get the alternatives up and running, the easier it's going to be to amortize these old and dogs and get rid of them. Indeed, indeed. That's so yeah. interesting. And this is the kind you are... It is so refreshing, Hazel, to speak with you because you are so, how do I put it, avant-garde. You're so out of no, the no, box. No, no, I just speak my mind, you know. <laughs> I know, but you're, you're, it's wonderful because your mind is free. And one of the points in your book uh, that you cited, the solarizing age here, uh, is, I love this, under the, under the chapter of the bankruptcy of conventional economics is uh -huh. a chapter called Hormones, Hidden Drivers of Trading and Behavior. And because my background is oh, very yes. much in psychology <laughs> and stress management, I'm looking at neuroscience and neurophysiology all the time. I would love to hear what what do you mean when you say Oh, it's so funny. This. Well, there is a wonderful book, Mitch, that you should recommend to your audience, and it's called yes. The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, and it was written <laughs> by this guy, John, let me see if I can remember his last name, but the title is so um, compelling, yes. you can you know, look Truly. it up. And Basically, he was a trader. He was a currency trader for, for like, uh, I, th I think it was maybe Deutsche Bank. I can't remember. But anyway, yes. he suddenly realized, hey, you know, this trading stuff is beginning to, to feel like an obsession, like gambling, yes. you know, a bit of an yes. addiction. What's going on here? And so he went <laughs> right. back to Cambridge University and got himself a biology a PhD. And then he went down to Canary Wharf, which is where all the traders are in London, and mm -hmm. took cheek swabs um, uh, and looked at their uh, DNA from these cheek swabs and discovers that they all have this tremendously elevated testosterone, which yeah. causes you to double down on risks. You feel uh -huh. invincible and uh, all of that and then um so they go on doubling down um you know in their investment as you know we've seen this happen you know like with yeah, the london whale and lord knows what for instance and then right. what happens is if the market breaks you know because these high frequency traders um are in there and they make money on the upside and the downside so they drive yes. the market up one day it goes up 200 points and then they all clean out the next day it goes down 200 yes. Point they all pick it up, you know, cheaply, uh -huh. and so this volatility at some point, um, the traders then get panicked, and then the hormone, um, um, 
Cortisol. This, this, uh, it's not adrenaline. Um, it, cortisol. Yes, it's cortisol. cortisol. Yes. And then they're like a deer caught in the headlights. And they they don't know what to do. And he said, then um, you start, you know, they have little buckets beside their training station so that they don't have to run to the bathroom. Oh, my word. They can pee in the buckets. Oh, my word. These are the people that manage your 401K. (laughs) Oh, my God. You're scaring me. (laughs) So you got to buy that. Too. And everybody I mean, else listening, you're scared. Yeah, That's I mean, the case. I, yeah. I was. I mean, what a page turner! <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the guy himself well, is a trader, and yeah. so he he came to the conclusion that uh, trading is an addiction. And that these yeah. traders, and you know, like all the people you know who do day trading and all of that, he said he he now treats them as a clinical population. Yeah. This is so funny. This yes. is so much the angle. I have been speaking about this for uh, over a decade, exactly what you're talking about, Hazel. In fact, I just am finishing an article for the Huffington Post, which exactly talks about this. And, wow. Uh, also, by the way, interfacing with politics. But yes. it's and and a certain kind of mindset. But it's essentially the what they've done is they've taken um, MRIs, um, functional MRIs of the brain of cocaine addicts and uh-huh. of traders, and it shows virtually identical areas of the brain that are activated. Oh. So it really is an addiction. Yes. It really is and, an addiction. And, you know, um, uh, the books that I review, a lot of them, like uh, Lord Adair Turner's new book called Between the Debt and the Devil. He used to be the top um, financial regulator in Britain. And um, and he, he's making the same point, that what's happened to financial markets now um, is they're just obsessed with trading and speculation. Mm -hmm. It's just an inside game where it's just making money out of money, making money out of money. And then there's another one I reviewed by John Kay called Other People's Money. And both of them more or less say that the whole market now is a Ponzi scheme. Wow. Pretty scary. Absolutely. And of course, um, Michael Lewis came to the same conclusion in Flash Boys. Um, not I to mention know the Big Short. Yeah, the Big Short for sure. And yeah. Inside Job as well. That won yes. an Academy Award that in the it, year of 2000. I remember. I remember. Okay. So the thing is that what we try to do to be to be constructive, what we yes. try to do with our TV shows um, is that they go to business schools all over the world yes. and and colleges. And what we found is that finance professors are quite lazy and love to um, to buy our half hour TV shows where we I just sit down and I. Interview interview all the pioneer asset managers who are doing fossil fuel free portfolios and making money on renewables and all of that and uh, so this is a nice rental income for our company you know we're a certified b corporation um yeah so basically would you explain um, what that means to our audience 
Uh, yeah, that means that um, you don't um, – you have a stakeholder model of your returns. It isn't about maximizing the money return to your investors. It's about caring for your employees, your suppliers, your communities, the environment, yes. a balanced uh, rate of return to everybody. Now, in it's our case, we are very small – Yes. So, I mean, we're very small. Uh, we don't have any line. outside investors. You know, I, I'm uh, I'm the major investor, and I have yeah. um, a business partner who owns 30%, but I we don't have any outside investors. But, yeah. you know, if we did... Um, you know, we would we've been recertified uh, just uh, to be this kind of a B corporation where you yes. formalize this. You know, it's and also called we, a benefit corporation. Is it's that called correct? a benefit corporation. Yes, and you can go to B corporation if you Google Google yes. B corporation. And yes. um, we've just um, I, I just got their latest uh, newsletter, and there are there's now thousands of companies around the world, a lot many many in Latin America and Europe as well as the USA, um, mm-hmm. that have this B Corporation Charter, and you shouldn't yes. really need to because there was it was really a mistake of Milton Friedman back in the days when. He and other University of Chicago professors said the only um, responsibility of business is to get to maximize the, the monetary return to the shareholders. Sure. Well, actually, not so. And um, a, a professor, a uh, law professor at Cornell, uh, Lynn Stout, uh, she wrote a book called The Myth of Shareholder Value. And she said that the reason that Milton Friedman made that mistake was yes. that basically they were not lawyers, they were economists. And they didn't realize that when you buy a share of stock of a company, you don't own a piece of the company. You own a contract. That's all. Oh, interesting. You see? And so it never was true that the shareholder value um, predominated over all of the other stakeholders. It was just basically a mistake. So, so we have a, we have a TV program on that, um, yes. which has been selling quite quite well if, in business schools. So we're that getting our so stuff out in the most creative way we can think, and and that is to introduce business school students. Um, who are in finance courses to all the pioneers who are now using the new model so mm-hmm. that they don't I waste all so their glad. student loans. You know, before I was aware, Hazel, of the B corporations going back some years, I just took the fundamental charter for the C Corp and I rewrote it. And uh, what it meant was it basically referred to as mul- to multiple bottom lines, which included the humanitarian aspect of taking proper care and respecting yeah. employees and the right. environment. Yes, and I rewrote yeah. it and I said, you know, these these uh, C C level um, 
officers are actually legally bound to fulfill the terms contractually of this charter. So rather than having them continuing this devil's work, if you will, let's have Mm -hmm. them Re, let's just rewrite the charter so it includes the planet and it includes people. Exactly know? right. And then yeah. they'll be liable to fulfill that. You know, exactly and then they right. came up with the B Corporation. Yeah. Yes, but they're, they're, you're right that there are other fa- forms of charter just like the one that you developed. See, you innovated yes. a charter um, that yes. fitted your uh, goals and your shareholders' goals. And there are others sure. like in Britain that's called the, the social enterprise. And so there's yeah. lots of different charters like this. And, of course, what people forget is that cooperatives, um, cooperative enterprises – in the world, most people don't know this, employ more people than all the commercial companies in the world combined. That's oh so many Say co-op. that again. Co-ops co-op. are the future. Like what kind of co-op? All of the cooperatives from uh, uh, from the, the, the dairy cooperatives in Wisconsin, uh, they have their own trade association in Washington. We are very big on cooperatives, and I'm an investor in cooperatives. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, if I d- disclose the names, I'll have to, you know, disclose it like uh, this one uh, called Equal Exchange in the Boston mm-hmm. area, um, mm-hmm. which um, uh, has fair trade coffee where the coffee growers get a proper price and uh, investing in co-ops is really like buying a CD except you get slightly more interest than you would from a bank (laughs) so (laughs) interesting right so interesting but you know that point that you're making is equivalent to the point that it's the small business in the United States that does most of the employing of people, not the Fortune 500 companies that everybody thinks does most of the employment. And for that, that for the data on that, go to the Kauffman Foundation um, in Kansas City. Uh, and okay. the Kauffman Foundation um, has been, that's K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N, um, they have been doing these studies for years. Um, yes. that that's where all the jobs come from, is from the, mm-hmm. the, the little companies and the startups. Right, right. The small entrepreneur, yeah, Main absolutely. Street, basically, that idea. Yeah, the big companies that's are, you know what the big companies are doing. They're downsizing, and on most of their money uh, is for buying back their stock to drive up the price. Yes, exactly, by controlling the, the supply. Making the shares yeah. scarce. And yes. and so, like um, the example of Apple recently, I was I just did a review of this new book called Makers and Takers, and mm-hmm. uh, she points out that Apple, this this woman who wrote this book is the business editor of Time magazine, and yes. so this book is going to be a big bestseller. And yes. she reverses the whole makers and takers thing, and she says that the makers are the small businesses, and the takers are the Wall Streeters. She turns the whole thing. She turns the whole thing around. God, that's wonderful. (laughs) Well, you know, this kind of also uh, echoes the fundamental understanding that I have of the new economics and the work of building local economies, the work of people such as 
David Corton. And yes. the whole idea of, you know, farm to table, buying local from food to everything else, ma and pa, and moving Absolutely. away from the big box stores and the yeah. mega mega yeah. giant corporations. And, and most this of is all, where we have Wall our Street. power. Yes. I'm sorry. So that, that's my message is bypass Wall Street until it yes. gets really reformed. And Dodd-Frank yeah. wasn't enough. And I think both no. Bernie Sanders and Hillary have been saying that Dodd-Frank wasn't enough. We have to do more and we have to go after hedge funds. But we have to change the whole model so that um, Wall Street is not just a money-making money um, kind yes. of circular game, but yes. um, we have to make finance the servant again of the, of the local economy. Of the local economy. Now, yes. it's interesting that, of course, it was during the Bill Clinton era that Glass-Steagall in uh, 1998 or 99 was rescinded and oh, put into place by by FDR, and it was that that would have prevented the 2008 bubble debacle. And You're right. Yet, You're absolutely you know, right. Yeah, and and the, the tragedy was that, um, you know, um, so often politicians don't know what they don't know about what's yes. wrong with economics. And so when Clinton came in, he brought uh, Robert Rubin in um, from Goldman Sachs, Larry and um, Rubin brought in Summers and Geithner and yes. um, all of these other people from Wall Street. And yes. we have um, had this revolving door between the Treasury Department and largely Goldman Sachs that's Correct. been going on for decades. That's and uh, right. unfortunately, even when Obama came in, um, the same thing happened. You know, Obama's yeah. a lawyer, but um, yeah. it, it's very hard, um, I find, for people to understand that economics is not a science. It, it's just a bunch of opinions that now <laughs> happen to be wrong. Well put. That's right. In fact, that brings up something that I would love to ask you about. You've already basically addressed it when you said that the United Nations has agreed globally that the idea of measuring GDP of a given nation is not a sound way of evaluating a nation's uh, economy. Absolutely. It's all money. They're all the, conducted in money. The flip the flip side of that, then, Hazel, is um, a sustainable, almost, I, I, you know, almost you could say a, um, not status quo, homeostatic economy that is always balancing. It goes up a little, it goes down a little. I was using recently the, um, the uh, example of a ma and pa store on Main Street in every town USA. And some days there are more sales some days there are fewer sales, but if you look at it over the course of a week or a month or a year, they remain with a relatively stable, relatively decent income for themselves. They have relatively the same number of employees who are getting small occasional bumps up in their salary and benefits, and everything moves along in a very gentle, simple cycle. So my question to you is, in that light, there isn't a need to begin to 
go for more is better. They don't have to borrow more money to expand their operation, get another 5,000 square feet. They can just steady state, if you will. Now, from an economic – from an economist's point of view, there's no GDP to speak of there to report. Is there – is that a sound business model? Yes, it is once you get the metrics straight. You see, if you try to measure everything in money coefficients, um, you begin to make these errors. And the new accounting standard, um, which is promulgated internationally by a group called IIRC, if you Mm -hmm. Google the capital letters IIRC, it means International Integrated Reporting Consortium, I think, since the C stands for. And so what they have done um, is they say, look, in, this, is, this is the new standard for accounting for a company, is that there are six different kinds of capital. There's financial capital, built capital, that means factories, you know, plant and equipment. Yes. Then there is the human capital, the employees, then there's the Labor. social capital, and that is the you know the culture of trust in the community and everything like that. And then Reputation. there is natural yes. capital, and then there is intellectual capital. Mm-hmm. And so the new accounting standard is to measure a company by to what extent it has conserved those six forms of capital in one way or another, or um, exploited them and wasted them. So that's the new accounting standard. And actually, there's an interview with me coming out in a global accounting journal. I haven't seen it yet, um, where I'm I'm talking about this. But this is the new international standard, the six forms of capital. And only... Really, not all of them can be measured in money coefficients. In fact, you know, most of them can't. And and so once you begin bringing all these other disciplines and the other knowledge that we know, you know, from physics and thermodynamics, the real world, hydrology, and Lord knows what, then you come up with what I call full-spectrum accounting. Where all of the uh, all, all of the assets are me- measured, and the performance of all of the company's assets are measured. That is so. so that's the new model. That is so good to hear. You're making it clear how much our overall society, largely because of what I'd call the narrowed bandwidth of media, has kept. Most people in the dark about this innovative, extremely humane and eco-friendly thinking. Holistic. <laughs> this is holistic thinking at its best. Well, they and can't do most it. Most people you don't see, even know it exists. Is, well, this is why I started a media company because yes. I knew that the mainstream media that get most of their advertising dollars from the fossil fuel on the nuclear power industry are not going to be able to track the evolution into this next solar age uh, stage economy. And and so that has proved to be the case. And it's only, I mean, we were founded in 2004. And um, 
you know, uh, everybody thought I was being, you know, very uh, sort of utopian and everything. Like that. Suddenly, um, yes. we're, we're mainstream. Suddenly, the institutional investor yes. um, is tracking our green transition scoreboard. And yes. I'm getting interviewed by international accounting journals. <laughs> you know? So I'm saying, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I never wanted to be mainstream. So I've got to get further outside the box. <laughs> What's next, right? What's next? This is so funny because I, too, started a media company back in 1993 called A Better World. And wow. Much I didn't of my know that. Impetus, well, yes. I How mean, it's a that? modest company, but that's a better world television and a better world radio are expressions of it. I mean, yes. now we're actually a foundation. We're a 501c3, frankly. Uh, that was the direction I decided to take it. But, you know, we're small scale. We're not big, although we're, our whole goal is to grow much, much more hefty. You know, so we and can the, have a the main greater thing reach. Is that, uh, yeah, I mean, the main thing is but that the motivation both, both behind it, and we the have motivation, to tell the truth. Absolutely. Yeah, the motivation, yeah. I was just saying, is absolutely parallel to yours, you know, yes, in I, doing what you did in 2004. Yes. It's, we, are, we are aghast at what is effectively a media blackout, which means an educational blackout of the people who get a large part of their education from television or radio. And And that's why we started, I I started this award for advertising because to the extent that advertising dollars drive um, mainstream media and the content thereof, I figured, okay, how do you raise the bar um, for more ethical advertising? So it isn't like two women mud wrestling, you know, over a beer commercial, (laughs) something horrible, you know. And so we decided, okay, you know, uh, we we don't want to, you know, if you criticize advertisers, they hide behind the First Amendment. Oh, you're trying to do something about free speech. So I decided, okay, I'm going to start a carrot. And so we're now in our 11th year of the Ethic Mark Awards for advertising that uplifts the human spirit in society. And if you go to ethicmark.org, you can see our last two winners. And the two, most of our nominations come from around the world. And the two winners last year, um, the for-profit winner was from Cambodia. And the non-profit winner was from Pakistan. And you can watch those three-minute campaigns and they will blow your mind. Because what we're doing is redefining how much advertising can actually educate the world. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's yes. a almost $600 billion a year industry. And most of it is this backing into the future, looking through the rearview mirror. Yes. You yes. know, and, and so, uh, I mean, like um, last year, um, the, the year before last, one of our winners um, was the Technical University of Lima, Peru, 
And this mm-hmm. was from a, they they won it for a string of billboards, and everybody thinks, oh my gosh, you know how awful. But these are all strung along the Plano Alto Highway where there's no rainfall, but they do mm-hmm. get morning mist. And these billboards are reverse osmosis machines. They capture the morning mist and provide the clean drinking water for all of the villages all along that um, highway. That is so innovative. That's what advertising could do. Yes. It, it also advertises, you know, get a technical degree from the Lima Technical University. Sure, sure. But that's what it is. They are the reverse osmosis machines. That is so Interesting. I've never heard of that before. Ever. Oh yes, and you know these these big um, water barrels at the bottom, and that's where people get their clean drinking water. Yes, yes, yes. That's so. So you know, you and I will like have that. to go offline and begin to cooperate more, won't we? <laughs> I think you are right. <laughs> Our <laughs> minds and hearts are wholly allied, Hazel, which we saw Definitely. before, but. It's oh, now yes. gotten fleshed out even further. Well, yes. I want to just thank you so much for all of your valuable work and input here. And uh, you are such a pioneer. It's such a pleasure. You're just a straight talker, as you said, and a clear thinker. And when you put those together, <laughs> you know, you're Well, you're I really want to thank you for your work, Mitch. And I'm looking forward to working with you much more in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely, Hazel. The feeling is mutual, and we'll make sure that happens. Thanks so much for joining us. Give uh, your website again, if you would, to our audience. Yes. Yes, the main website is ethicalmarkets, plural, all one word, ethicalmarkets.com. And you can watch all the TV shows at ethicalmarkets.tv. Excellent. Excellent. Hazel Henderson, you are a gem. I so appreciate your good work. Keep it up, and uh, we will be talking very soon. Good. Okay. Well, thank you, Mitch. I've enjoyed it. Take care. All the best. Sure. Good night now. Bye-bye. Hazel Henderson, what a winner of a woman who has just – her story is so interesting, too, how she came uh, about uh, being interested in understanding the environmental impact of systems. In fact, as I recall, it was when she lived in New York City and she had a couple of children and she was looking out for their welfare that really launched her serious interest in the environment and in pollution and what we had to do about it to protect our young ones hers in particular, and everyone else's as well. And that has led to a lifelong commitment to the interface of sound, humane, and eco-friendly economics with the world at large. So I'm so honored and privileged to be speaking with Hazel Henderson again on these airwaves. I want to thank you all for listening yet again to A Better World. I know you have so many choices and that you come and spend time with us here is a great, as we say, mitzvah, a great gift to me and to uh, our, our larger community. 
So thank you again. Please remember that we too are a 501c3, a nonprofit. We survive and thrive on your kind donations and generosity. That's what keeps us going. Uh, and so please know you can make donations at abetterworld.tv or if they are anywhere uh, north of $500, please just contact me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net. My direct address, mjr at abetterworld.net or 212-420-0800. Always pleased to speak with you directly. I also so appreciate your comments and suggestions for shows and your appreciation of the shows that we do. So with that said, also, if you uh, need uh, any of my kinds of consultations, communication, business, stress management consultations, go to www.mitchellrabin.com, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com. You can read all about it. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything.